I am in the heart of the University of Toronto's St. George campus, standing in front of Max Gluskin House, which is home to the Department of Economics. From the University of Toronto, I'm Randy Boyagoda, and this is What Now? Good to see you. So, my office is, let's say, very feng shui. There's nothing in it, so I'm just... <laughs> Yeah, this is like an interrogation room. You think? Very minimalist. I feel, yeah, right? I feel like I'm in trouble with border guards or something. Clementine Van Effenter is an assistant professor of economics who joined the University of Toronto in 2019 after receiving her doctorate from the Paris School of Economics. She is interested in how norms, institutions, and policies influence labor market outcomes and gender inequality. She's also a much more experienced podcaster than I am. Clementine, bonjour. Bonjour, thank you so much for having me. I started studying economics um, at the beginning of the Great Recession. So at the time, I wanted to understand um, what could explain recessions, whether we could predict them, and what we could do about them. What were the policy tools we had to mitigate their consequences? And at the same time, I was a you know, young French woman, I was a citizen witnessing what was happening in the world and who cared about social justice. And I was witnessing the massive social movements that were going on in Europe uh, against the austerity measures that were implemented at the time. And so you, you clearly had, a, as you say, a kind of direct academic interest, but it also sounds to some degree like it was personal. You identified yourself as a French woman, as a citizen. And what were you noticing around you with respect to, just for, for those who might not remember, to the ways in which austerity measures in the EU were being uh, responded to by citizens? So I think at the time what was interesting is that um, people could understand the reaction and the, the outpouring and uh, response to these, uh, these measures, but we were not really aware of then the economic consequences of these mass protests or the sort of political implications of inequality. And I think this is something that economists have been more aware of in the past decade, and that's why inequality uh, gained so much importance in the field of economics as a whole. So I think it was a very exciting time to be studying economics basically in the past uh, decade. Now, you have uh, engaged in, in public ways with these questions yourself. What is or are Inequality Talks? So I launched Inequality Talks, which is a podcast series, in July 2020, uh, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm when it became clear that this pandemic would disproportionately affect the most vulnerable groups and it would exacerbate pre-existing unequal distribution of resources and opportunities. And so the podcast emerged as a tool to disseminate innovative research on this pressing issue of inequality. And so it's basically a series of informal 20-minute conversations predominantly with young emerging scholars, and that was really important to me, also to shed light on uh, the fact that this new generation of economists, more diverse, uh, have a very diff different set of interests. And I wanted to unpack a little bit the making of economics as well. So now, speaking to you as an economist yourself, part of the public conversation about the economic effects of the pandemic has been to suggest 
to my mind at least, two things. One, the creation of new inequalities, but I think more so the exposure and exacerbation of pre-existing inequalities. What are some of the most significant challenges of the past two years that, Clementine, you think will remain challenges when it comes to inequality? So at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this notion that because the virus was highly contagious, everyone could be affected. The rich, the poor, rich countries were affected as well. And that the pandemic would be some kind of great equalizer. Mm. And we found out very early on that this was far from being the case and that there were disparities, like you said, that pre-existed the pandemic. Disparities in health, in opportunities, in, in the labor markets, in the household. And the pandemic has highlighted and reinforced these pre-existing inequalities. To take one example, we know that the distribution of household work within the household was far from equal. Before the pandemic, women did two more hours of household activities daily uh, more than men. Uh, during the pandemic, women were twice as likely as men to reduce their working hours to take care of children. And this increase in childcare needs was caused by school and daycare closures, obviously. But additionally, they were facing also higher unemployment risk because their employment is concentrated in industries, heavily affected sectors, such as like restaurants, for instance. Mm -hmm. We additionally know that women were more likely to suffer from intimate partner violence during the pandemic, that they had um, more impact in terms of mental health. So. Overall, I think COVID-19 has revealed that uh, probably we were not paying enough attention about the economics within the household, mm. for instance. Um, but more broadly, I think it has challenged our definition of what essential workers were, uh, how we think about the future of work, and how we think about the safety net, for instance. So just on that point about the, the future of work, shorter work weeks, hybrid work arrangements, virtual work, um, what I think the New York Times is called the Great Resignation. Given your own interests in these areas, how do you think our norms around the concept of work have changed for the better or the worse? So I think it is important to look both at the evolution of norms and the evolution of economic forces at the same time, because norms do not evolve in a vacuum. If you think, for instance, at uh, remote work, for instance, we know that COVID-19 drove a massive social experiment in working from home. Uh, according to a survey from Stanford, 20% of full workdays will be supplied from home after the pandemic ends, compared to just 5% before. So definitely the social stigma associated to work from home has declined. But we know that it depends very much whether firms are making the human and physical capital investment to facilitate these transitions. And remote work is not something for everybody. It's common in industries with better educated and better paid workers, for instance. And it is important to keep in mind that workers are not necessarily going to consider alternative working arrangement if that means cutting wages. Mm -hmm. There is a conversation that must be happening about wages and working conditions of low-paying jobs. And this is something that emerged in around this notion of the great resignation. So the idea of the great resignation is the fact that many employers are alarmed about the current labor shortages. Um, and they are worried that it would 
potentially affect the economy as a whole. Uh, there's actually little evidence that the labor shortage is caused by government uh, benefits that would discourage uh, work. And there's little evidence that it will arm the economy as a whole. Actually, for a lot of labor economists, it is more an opportunity than a crisis. Uh, we still know very little about what's behind this great resignation. What we know is potentially people's valuation of their own time has changed. And the sense that people are, are less eager to do low paid work uh, in certain industries where there are few career prospects and development, and they would decide to spend potentially more time on family, education, and leisure, even if it means less consumption. And so it makes sense that the pandemic allowed individuals to uh, question some fundamental aspects of their work, whether it's how much control you have on your schedule, the degree of monitoring uh, on your own work. And so the labor scarcity that we are experiencing is real, uh, but it's potentially a way to catalyze better working conditions for those who need them most. Now, that said, let's together be a little more self-critical for a moment. When it comes to inequality, I think it's generally easier to look up and feel outraged or to look way down and feel outraged rather than look in the mirror and consider your own comparative privilege and security. I'll put it in a different way. I am wealthier and healthier now than I was three years ago. And I suspect I'm not the only person in my demographic for whom that's the case. And I would also suspect that there are millions of people for whom this is not the case because of the pandemic. So in other words, those of us, I think, with secure jobs, living in secure places, in every sense of those terms, have emerged from the pandemic probably in better shape uh, in every sense. And so what I'm wondering basically is, how do we deal with the fact that some people during this pandemic, not simply the super rich, have undeniably enjoyed better experiences and outcomes economically and socially than the great majority of others? So there are several things that we can say about this. So there are some aspects of our shared psychologies that explain why people are comparing themselves in order to evaluate how their level of well-being. Mm. So uh, this is not a new idea. This is something that economics has investigated a while ago with the notion of uh, conspicuous consumption, for instance, like how much my own utility and consumption depends on what the others are doing. But I would say this is not just a quirky feature of human nature. There is something more fundamental uh, behind the reason why people are interested in looking at inequality as a whole. It's because it's a matter of social justice. And so in order to investigate that, we need to develop tools to measure inequality. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, I think, the first thing. And just uh, going back to this idea of looking at our own situation and our own privilege, um, I think it is an important question that is emerging in the field of economics right now, this idea that if economics is potentially perpetuating inequality, that has everything to do with the lasting implications of the marginalized group. So there's a study, for instance, from the Peterson Institute for International Economics that came out yesterday that uh, shows that economics is actually the least diverse profession in terms of socioeconomic background. It's even less diverse than art, history, and classics. So there is something about uh, you know, the, the type of people that are comfortable in evolving in the field of economics that potentially also affects the way we 
we look at the world right. and the type of questions that so we ask. So kind of self-selection and self-perpetuation is going on there, you're saying? Potentially, mm -hmm. yes. So I think this is, a, this is something that we should always consider uh, when we, and that's something I teach my students, so that when you ask an economy question, first is, why do we care? Mm -hmm. And second is, what is the evidence? And how is this evidence produced? One final question. So you, you grew up in France, you live in Toronto now. If you could describe for us some of the differences that you see in, in how people understand themselves in class terms. And so for, for two kind of uh, juxtapositions, it's a longstanding joke that in the United States, whether you are a multi-billionaire or have no food, you self-identify as middle class. Everyone in America is middle class. In a place like Britain, there are micro distinctions between people based on their accents, um, for example. What do you notice about class in Canada versus France? So there's actually a very interesting study that is looking at the misperception of social mobility. Mm -hmm. The fact that in Europe, uh, compared to North America, people might be more pessimistic about their actual chances of going up the ladder versus in America, there's this over-optimism about your ability to become richer in the next generation. And so I think it's, uh, it's first fascinating to be able to document these differences. And another question is like, to what extent exposing people to better information about the actual position and about the lack of social mobility in society is affecting these perceptions. Mm. And so I think that's why, as economists, we have an even greater responsibility at documenting the reality of social mobility in different countries, whether it's by socioeconomic backgrounds, by gender or by race, uh, in order to depicting an accurate picture of how society is retributing individuals based on their talents and giving equal opportunities to all, mm -hmm. to see how people are updating, as we say in economics, and uh, whether they are changing their policy preferences, for instance, and whether they become more supportive of uh, more generous uh, redistribution through taxes and transfers. And that you think that changes their own self-perception of their class position? Yeah, that's a very interesting field of research that people are investigating right now, whether you're more likely to uh, change your perceptions when we are providing information about your in-group or out-group yes, right. and so on. So, uh, yeah, that's why I really love my job and I want to continue exploring this question. What Now is a production of University of Toronto Communications. It's hosted by me, Randy Boyagoda and produced by Lisa Lightborn. Follow us and listen wherever you get your podcasts.